Were you robbed in the $40 billion heist? Bankers salivate over COP26 payday. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 19th of November 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Elisa. On today's show, we're going to be discussing the money wiped out of Australians' savings since 2008 and ASIC on trial in the Australian Parliament this week for those losses and the real intention of COP26, which is to make bankers a fat paycheck to keep the current financial system which is about to blow going. So today's first topic, were you robbed in the $40 billion heist? Now before we get into the details of that heist, um, which is a very real thing, um, we're not exaggerating here, we first want to make an announcement about um, the regional banking task force that has recently been set up uh, in the parliament. Uh, which is in response really to decades of banks shutting down branches across regional, not only regional, but particularly across regional right. Australia. And this came to a head somewhat in our campaign um, to defend Australia Post because, of course, they've picked up the slack over the course of the years from well, the it, banks. It's actually one of the knock-on effects from the Australia Post campaign, uh, Lisa, because that highlighted the dearth of bank branches in regional Australia and why post offices are so important. Um, anyway, the Nationals saw how significant that was from the campaign. They put up this idea of an inquiry. It's turned into a regional banking task force. So they've just issued their uh, issues paper, which people can, can find online and we can link to it on our website, um, or we'll actually link to it in the comments underneath here. Um, people should participate in this. There's, they're, they're, list, they're uh, receiving submissions until the 18th of December, right? Now, um, let, me, let me make a point about the term regional. It's not what you think it is. You could live in uh, uh, what you regard as a as a, um, a medium capital city suburb and, mm. and effectively be considered regional to the banks. They are ripping out branches and ATMs everywhere, not just in regional Australia. In fact, I know one report from an ATM ripped out in Darling Harbour in Sydney, inconveniencing the people who live in that area. Right, these, everything but the CBD essentially. Th these banks are being very, very aggressive because it, it ties in with their desire to minimise and actually get rid of cash use in Australia, etc. But in the in regional Australia, there's no alternative to having proper banking services, um, and people need this is the this is the way government works. People need to seize on this, and if this is a token effort by the government, don't let them get away with it. Make mm. it a big effort. Participate. Make your submission to the inquiry. We'll put out details in the coming week about sort of parameters people, that people can use to do that. But get involved in this, right? This, um, our message this inquiry will be, we need a post office bank. Mm. Stuff the private banks. They need banking services in regional Australia. The government should establish a post office mm. bank. Now, that's just really one aspect of the bigger picture we're talking about today, which is how the financial parasites have taken over our economy. And since, of course, the banking or Financial Services Royal Commission, that's become very explicit. Um, but the 
the uh, the $40 billion heist we want to talk about is one very, very concrete aspect of that, and this accounts for um, money lost by Australians since 2008. These are figures that have been put together by the Association of Independently Owned Financial Professionals, and they're reporting that over 200,000 consumers have lost a total of, well, over $40 billion. Yeah. Now, Lisa, this relates to the Sterling First uh, inquiry, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and, um, which is actually what most of this segment is going to be about. But um, this Peter Johnson and, and his Association of Independent Financial Professionals put up this list in relation to Sterling because the, the question for the Sterling victims will be what compensation do they get? And at the moment, they're, they're not on track to get any but they are the tip of an iceberg, and it's a huge iceberg. And it, it's so big, 200,000 people since 2008 have lost $40 billion. That means that what the sterling victims are dealing with is not a one-off, it's systemic, mm -hmm. right? ASIC is a failed regulator. It sits back while predators go and prey on people. Now, let me read you some of the names. Now, we can uh, scroll this list slowly up while I'm, while I'm reading. I just want to highlight some of the big ones. So, for instance, starting from the, from the biggest, Great Southern Agribusiness, right? And Great Southern Agribusiness was something that people got sucked into by financial advisors. Well, not, all, not just financial advisors, but some of the financial advisors that told people to invest in Great Southern Agribusiness were uh, getting kickbacks from the business, mm. right? This sort of thing, and the, and the public didn't know about it. Um, you know, you've got AXA, you've got Australian Unity, you've got... AM, you know, AMP funds, you've got ANZ funds, you've got APM Property Group, you've got Astara, Trio Capital, um, uh, you've got Colonial First State, there you go, $1.9 billion in a Commonwealth Bank-owned mm. fund, right? Um, you've got LM Investment Management, uh, you've got Storm Financial, uh, you've got Opus, Opus Prime. These the, the victims of these funds will know who they are, mm. And what you've got to understand, if you're a victim of these funds and you got ripped off in this $40 billion heist, the Royal Commissioner, Ken Hayne, one of his recommendations was all the victims of those funds should be compensated. Retrospectively as well. Yes. And remember when, um, at the end of, when he handed down his report and he said that, as one of many recommendations, the government opposition tripped over themselves to say, we will implement Haynes' recommendations in full. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that one too. You, th there is, this is a fight that we're waging where you, the victims of those funds, should get involved because there's two parts to it. We, people should be compensated for these losses because they reflect the settings of a system that the government set up to allow this kind of predation of everyday people, to allow predators to prey on everyday people. That's the government's fault. That's ASIC's fault. They must be reliable for that, right? And that's one level. Two, forcing them to do this is the only way to force them to overhaul the system so it doesn't happen again. Because right now, two and a half years after the Royal Commission, it may as well not have happened. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to, our party doesn't sit there and go, see, nothing works. Yeah. You'll never fix the system. No, no, no. The system must be fixed. We don't have a choice, and we're going to keep on this until we do. This is this is actually a a winnable vote, vote fight. If all the two hundred thousand victims get involved, let me assure yeah, you. Yeah. So contact us if you're one of them. Get involved. But um, you know, you see a list like that, and you say, "Where are the regulators?" And that's what came up this week on Tuesday and Thursday. There were hearings 
held by the uh, Senate committee that's going on at the moment, specifically into Stirling First and ASIC's response to that. Yep. Um, so ASIC was thoroughly exposed. Um, now, you know, there's more to be done, well, we but they said, were put in the spotlight. We, we said on Tuesday in a press release, ASIC on trial. Well, the verdict is in. Guilty. Guilty of criminal negligence mm. and, Elisa, guilty of a cover-up. Yeah. And uh, so this uh, inquiry was... Uh, run the hearings were run at least by Liberal Senator Paul Scar along with Labor's Deb O'Neill and Louise Pratt and it was interesting that Scar's involvement came as a result of uh, one of our activists that had called up and he happened to answer the phone and put the word out hey you know this senator's answering the phone He's and some of the phone. some of the Sterling first victims themselves got to speak to him as well and he was moved by that well he's a, he's a Queensland senator most of the victims are WA but because he took those calls from that week of action at the beginning of September, he got involved and he mm. frankly did a very good job. It's, a, it's an excellent example of why we say citizens should engage in the, in the process. Mm. Now, um, Joe Longo is now the head of ASIC. Of course, he wasn't at the time when this went on. Um, they did not have the leadership that was there at the time on the stand, nor did they have the WA ASIC leadership that originally you know, reported the complaints and so forth that ASIC then took forever to follow up on. Um, so in his opening statement, he was given the very first word. Joe Longo uh, was completely defensive about we did everything we possibly could. And in fact, the submission that ASIC put forward was just... It just documented years of bureaucratic dithering and, oh, we followed procedure here, X, yeah, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah. You know, technically they followed everything that they had to do. Uh, but, of course, the senators went on to grill him about why he didn't act. And that's where it began to get interesting. And there's a number of uh, things that we'll highlight in that uh, coverage. Well, what uh, ASIC made a strategic mistake, uh, Elisa, because they bookended the hearing so that they had the first say and the last say, the first say on Tuesday morning and the last say on Thursday afternoon or yesterday afternoon. And um, I think after the witnesses that followed them from the first hearing went through, ASIC might have thought, hmm, maybe, wouldn't have been maybe it would have been better not to say anything at first so we, everything we could say would be in response to those witnesses and we could be in damage control because they were in damage control, yeah. but the witnesses dramatically contradicted them. Right. So here you had, yes, ASIC basically saying it, quite arrogant, quite confident. Um, uh, uh, Longo said at one point, people have too much expectations of the regulator. Right. Here's what we here's what we did. It was entirely appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I want to play a, uh, a couple of clips that give you a sense of what changed badly for ASIC in the following testimony. So the first one was a former ASIC investigator testified. His name's Niall Coburn. And Niall Coburn, everything he said was a dramatic contradiction to Joe Longo. And he made the point that he used to work, Joe Longo's been an ASIC twice. This is his second time around. Long, Coburn used to work under Longo at ASIC, right? Locking up fraudsters. Mm. And he, he goes through, and we'll play this clip, the sections of the law that empowered ASIC to act precisely in the way that Longo said they couldn't have acted, right, where they could have intervened early and stopped this rot. So have a look at that. Um, I'd just like to outline, first of all, that the objects of the ASIC Act are set out in Section 1. Section 1, um, among other objects, indicates that ASIC must protect 
consumers, especially vulnerable consumers. And I'll come back to the word protect means take action. Um, the real question for me, how I can add value, is in what what action should have ASIC taken when it received the information from the Western and Australian regulator. The facts of this case indicate to me that ASIC failed to act decisively when it received very serious information and complaint from the regulator on the 17th of March 2017 and failed to take appropriate action within its powers, within its powers, to stop this scheme. Every case that ASIC does, and indeed when I worked at ASIC, every case was complicated. There was no simple cases. Um, um, in the ASIC report that I've read, ASIC has not explained internally why it failed to act at certain important junctures. Its use of the stop orders were not appropriate in the circumstance. A stop order, I can explain that, they were just, they're a mere administrative um, lips when something um, needs to be corrected in a prospectus or a BSD. Um, in this case, there were serious, serious material non-disclosures of risks to, to investors that would have been known had ASIC interviewed people shortly after the 17th of March 2017. Um, ASIC could have intervened and used the following powers, which we used non-exceptionally in many cases to stop these fraudsters occurring, which occur um, numerous occasions throughout a year in Australia. These powers are 1324 of the Australian um, of the Corporations Act and 1323. They are injunctions and they are preservation of assets. Um, when you fail to take decisive action in these types of frauds, you, failed, you fail to preserve the assets and the money goes. So if you're not quick off the mark, you lose the money. Um, there's no explanation of why ASIC wasn't quick off the mark. And, and I, I can answer questions in relation to those. Um, in relation to uh, the recommendations that I'd like to make, that I that I ask you to consider is that Parliament should make a recommendation to compensate these investors because of the um, uh, maladministration involved. All right. So this is him. This is a this is a, an asset guy on the ground, guy with experience, right? And 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 what I loved about Noel Coburn's testimony, it was uh, unlike ASIC, it was not disconnected from the fact that. Whatever your legalistic and academic arguments are about dealing with this case, Elisa, you cannot separate it from the fact that this company is preying on the most vulnerable elderly people. Mm. There's a real world out there, and you know how these scammers work. He called them fraudsters. You know how they work. There's a certain approach to targeting elderly people, and they, they master it. And at the end, the poor old elderly people feel so stupid, but they don't know they've been dealing with people that are that are masters, instinctive masters of this approach. Noel Coburn recognised that, that they should have recognised that and acted forcefully at first, and it really made Longo look bad. Um, 
The second one, I just want to play um, part of this. This is the opening statement of two of the witnesses. Now, the significance of these two witnesses, Laurie and Lou Thomas, is that they are already evicted from their homes. So they're, they're the first evictees of 140. If this is not addressed and they aren't comp these victims aren't compensated, they're all so, out on the street. And just to give people who haven't been watching a sense, so they, they entered into this arrangement as a rent-for-life scheme. They yep. thought they were paying their rent 40 years in advance. Anything that was left over if they passed away would be returned to their family. They did not realise they were actually entering into a what Neil Kerbin described as a complex and convoluted managed investment scheme. So that's no the basis of that's the... Right. They had no clue. And the beautiful thing is from their experience, they know where the blame lies and you'll see this in their statement. Do you have an opening statement, Mr and Mrs Thomas? Uh, yes, I do. Thank you. You okay. can go ahead now. Okay, thank you. Um, the opening statement I've got is, uh, the opening paragraph on ASIC submission is an abomination and insulting the intelligence of the victims and their families. ASIC acknowledges the collapse of the Sterling Group and Sterling Income Trust has had a devastating impact on their clients, many of whom are elderly. However, from there on, ASIC is showing it has no understanding of the crime scene and what we have had to put up with ASIC for the past two and a half years. We do not agree on the following. Those losses were primarily caused by product and organisational complexity, mispriced products and a fall in the residential property market. That is totally untrue. The reason we are here to today is because on the 21st of March 2014, Sterling New Life was registered with ASIC by known criminal directors that had failures in West Point and Heritage. But ASIC still thought it was a good idea to license the responsible entity, knowing fully the past history and associations of those involved. These permissions to steal the life savings from aged pensioners came from ASIC. Mr Longo stated that we went into this with two hats on when we signed up, tenant hat and an investor hat. That statement is insanely insensitive. We were not investors, we were renters. The landlord was the investor. There was no mention of the word investors in promotions before or at the time of our signing leases for 40 years. None. Our life savings was to go into a trust fund that we could leave in our will for our family after we passed on. That was a major selling point. We have since found out that the sellers of Sterling were not licensed, nor did they have any access to or any knowledge of any PDS, and that we were not privy to prior to signing the Sterling leases. ASIC have an appalling record in these schemes and after 23 years of failures still have no idea. Denise Braley warned them about West Point when losses were around $100 million, but did nothing until West Point collapsed, owing $680 million. ASIC did not learn from that mistake 
When they finally put a stop order on sterling in September 2017, they then allowed another $11 million to be stolen up until January 2019, when the last tenants entered the scheme. A Royal Commission into ASIC's appalling efforts is needed so these white-collar criminals are stopped from stealing from the elderly. ASIC's job is to weed the criminals out of the system before any more people are put through the stress, mental anguish and the embarrassment we were forced to endure because of ASIC's negligence. We also suffered from the first couple to go to the Supreme Court and be evicted from our house. As ASIC is 100% at fault, we want an apology for putting us through hell. They should man up, admit they were wrong and have the decency to have all of our life savings that they allowed Sterling directors to steal return to us now. So we can at least have a Merry Christmas in 2021. All right, so those were the that they were two segments of the follow-up testimony um, after ASIC. Now I have to, we don't have time to play them all here. We're going to produce a video of the highlights of the testimony because I want, it, it, you know, we're, as as citizens, you get frustrated at politics, every aspect of it. Um, you would be more empowered if you got to participate in the process all the time and see how it happens and see where you can intervene and where you can apply pressure, et cetera. Most people don't have time to do that. But when you see these inquiries work at their best, and this is a good one, when you see them work at their best, you're, you can also have some, frankly, it gives you a little bit of more confidence that there is a process that can be intervened in. You cannot give up on the system. I mean, let me, let me put it this way, Alyssa. You could give up, but what's the alternative? We're gonna have a government anyway, you may as well stay involved and do your best to make it a good one, mm. right? To make the process work. So anyway, um, so the other testimony came from, uh, there were other victims like Beryl Taylor, who I interviewed uh, on our show. Um, she did an excellent job and really hammered the point that she was an, a, um, a tenant, not an investor. And that's a key theme. Um, the great Denise Braley and the truly great Denise Braley gave her testimony, and she certainly got the attention of the senators for sure, um, because Denise has done the work. Mm. She's in, she, she made the point in her submission and her testimony, she's interviewed all the witnesses, um, most of the sellers, most of the landlords, some of the directors. She's done so much work for nothing. Denise doesn't, doesn't make money out of this. Mm. She's someone who has spent her, the last 30 years of her life fighting acid corruption. She, she saw this happening in her, her home state. She drives a couple of hours from where she lives to, to help the victims out, right? Um, and she's taken charge of their case to try and, to try and get justice for them. And, and that... I mean, ASIC's done nothing compared mm. to Denise Brown. Well, Senator Scar actually thanked her and he said it's actually quite inspiring. It is. What she'd done. So her and, and um, uh, uh, Senator Deb O'Neill did as well. I, I pay tribute to the three senators, Deb O'Neill, Louise Pratt and Senator Scar. They all made a very important contribution. They participated really well. And just to add to that, uh, the Green Senator Steele, John, actually made a quite an important intervention too. Well, so important, I want to play it. Okay. All right. Now, um, Jordan Steele, John, is a Western Australian Green Senator. He, he also, yeah, his contribution was excellent. Um, but he didn't get to do much, right? But what he did, man, he made it um, stick. He made it effective. Because let me set the scene. 
Yesterday afternoon, ASIC was back on the stand, and because of all this powerful testimony that had contradicted their first appearance, they were in supreme damage control. Now, Joe Longo is not responsible for the crime, ASIC's crime of criminal negligence. He is responsible for the cover-up. Full cover-up mode. And what's really disgusting, cover-up in such a way, he insists, and you'll see it in the clip I'm going to play, on calling them investors, and that's to cover ASIC's but, and but by doing that, he knows that under the current arrangements, he is locking them out of any possible compensation by calling them investors. But ASIC's reputation, ASIC's circling the wagons so that ASIC is not forced to change is more important to this banker's boy, Joe Longo, than justice for these 140 elderly victims, right? It was supremely disgusting. So he comes back on there and it's all about um, a different tone though. Oh, with the benefit of hindsight, he says, I don't want to make excuses. And then he just did nothing but make excuses. And then he's hiding behind these mealy-mouthed things like, um, oh, the problem is that, you know, ASIC's bound by the fact we've got to apply procedural fairness and due process, yeah. not to the victims, to the predators, mm -hmm. right? And he's trying to explain why in these explicit cases they couldn't have just got in there and stopped it, right, knowing what was going on. And he's trying to explain all that away. Oh, with the benefit, and he's being so sincere because it was full damage control mode. And so Jordan Steele John decided to take him at his word and listen to what Jordan asks Joe Longo and pay attention to Joe Longo's immediate reaction. Uh, so you, you've been, been pretty you've been pretty candid with us during your evidence um, and you've expressed it a number of times that with the benefit of hindsight, um, there may well have been things that ASEC would have uh, done differently, um, yes. particularly with the, with the wisdom of the previous, with, with the subsequent uh, uh, judgment that was, the legacy judgment that was issued. Um, now I've had, and I suspect Senator Pratt and Senator Scar, um, I've had uh, a number of communications and emails and phone calls from individuals that have been affected by the Sterling First debacle. Um, and the level of distress is, is is profound. These are people that feel like they did the right thing, uh, that they try to kind of do what everybody thinks you should do, which is secure your home in retirement, um, and are now on the verge of homelessness with no particular, no no clear path of recourse. Um, putting aside the question of uh, compensation, which may well be a a, a, a it is a question for, for government and potentially the, a recommendation of the inquiry. Reflecting on, on where we are now and the role that ASIC played, uh, are you able to offer to the victims of this situation an apology on behalf of um, ASIC? An apology? Mm. The, uh, well, I think the original... In, um, as, as, as Commissioner Armour said, uh, at ASIC we do our best to look out for people who make investments, and I'm now going to use that word. Um, so these individuals tragically made um, an investment. They signed a lease that was linked to an investment, and that um, proved to be something that um, we now all know uh, led to 
great losses for them personally. I do not think it's appropriate for me, it's emotionally inappropriate for me to say that ASIC should be apologising for that. I think what ASIC can say is that we've um, tried to respond to the issues that have been brought to our attention, we've tried to act in good faith, we've tried to be helpful to secure the interests of investors. But we now know that the tenant investors um, got caught up in a scheme that was, um, wasn't sustainable, you know, it didn't work. There you have it. What? Apology? You're gonna, you mean I have to back up my platitudes about the benefit of hindsight and how, how um, concerned we are with an actual apology? There's two things to an apology, Elisa. One is, and there's no way he was going to do it for this reason, apology implies liability. Hell no way, right? Um, but two, it, it, uh, it actually backs up what you're going to say, what, what you're pretending. And of course, they didn't do that. They, didn't, they had no intention of doing that. And he, st I didn't want to play the whole, didn't get to play the whole exchange, but still John comes back at him and he still wouldn't apologise. But right there, look at how he insisted at that point, it was the most insistent he was on calling them investors. Because this term investors is ASIC's cover. Australian financial regulation is governed in such a way that there's no, um, uh, it's caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Mm. ASIC does not have to protect investors from bad decisions. That's explicit in their philosophy, right? These people were not investors. Um, there was an investment component that they were frauded on, um, but ASIC wants to ignore that and insist on calling them investors so we can say we have no obligation here. Mm. And still John you know, showed that up. Did this guy used to be a lawyer for white-collar criminals, Joe Longo? Well, the, the biggest. Uh, he was Alan Bond's lawyer. <laughs> right? In fact, he got, he got into ASIC the first time in the late 90s because he was bitching, if I can use that term, um, on this show, <laughs> sorry, that's the right word, that the ASIC predecessor called the Australian Securities Commission was too tough on white-collar crime. Mm -hmm. And so he joined them and he became the head of enforcement. And in the year 2000, there was a financial review headline by um, Adele Ferguson, ASIC the Toothless Tiger, right? He took its fangs out and they haven't got it back. Mm -hmm. And those 200,000 victims who've lost $40 billion, they actually have people like Joe Long. He's one of the people they have to thank for that because he's one of the people who brought in the ASIC culture that has um, rigged the system in favour of predators over the public ever since. Mm. So the, what was really clear in these hearings is the complete dysfunctionality of ASIC as an agency, but the complicity as well is what has to be pursued. Yeah. And look, um, it's ASIC's failing that has brought the Sterling First people to where they are. And we have no doubt that the report is going to be scathing. However, it must recommend compensation immediately because 16 of these people have already passed away before they've got their justice. In coming weeks, we're going to be participating in a significant way in the fight to expand what's called the compensation scheme of last resort so we can cover all 200,000 victims of these 40 billion schemes exactly as Commissioner Hain called for. However, that's going to be a fight because this government doesn't want to help anybody out. Um, the Sterling victims cannot, their, their fate cannot be tied to that. 
This is a this is a failure of ASIC in its own right. ASIC is a government agency. This is the government's liability. The eighteen million dollars, and in the overall scheme of things, people, it's a drop. I mean, it's not even a drop in the ocean. It's so insignificant to Josh Frydenberg. It's not funny. Pay them. Mm. Let them keep their houses. Yeah. Right. Fix this. So if you're a victim of one of these or any of these schemes, uh, you can call the senators that participated in this hearing, if you like, and um, give them a nudge in that direction. Now, we're going to move on to our next topic. Bankers salivate over COP26 payday. Cha-ching. <laughs> so at the COP26 summit in Glasgow that's just ended on climate change, uh, key leaders called for basically a wholesale rewiring of global finance, um, you know, anchored to certain green criteria. And one of the key components of that was using uh, the necessity to use the, the private sector to, forced a, to force a shift upon governments. So we're essentially talking about a new top-down financial order um, based on these green um, pretenses, which really are pretenses because it was really obvious that this would do more to line uh, the bankers' um, ledgers and balances than anything to do with decreasing the climate. And you have to, I mean, I, I hope people just pay attention to that because um, we don't go after bankers for nothing. <laughs> it's not a good industry. It's not, there's, no better, there's no other country in the world where it's better than here, right? Um, and they, they, they have self-interest first and foremost. Um, so that's an issue. Plus, Josh Frydenberg, I've never seen anyone more explicit that the only reason Australia had this dramatic shift to net zero before COP26, he said the international creditors demanded it. I mean, mm. what he was describing was extortion. Um, and we noticed when we first started looking at this, how this was unfolding in the early 90, uh, 2000s, Elisa, with around emissions trading schemes, but here you have a scenario where we're being told little kids are gluing themselves to city streets in protest because the world's going to end in 11 years' time and the ultimate solution is a, a, a financial trading scheme that's yeah. going to profit banks? Yeah. Give me a break. But while there's a scientific issue there that needs to be looked at and debated, that part of it is a scam. Yeah. So I'll come back to the details of that. But um, just to situate it, at the COP26 summit, you had Prince Charles calling for a global systems-level solution based on radically transforming our current fossil fuels-based economy. He actually said what is needed is a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector with trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. And the second... What's his carbon footprint again? Oh, yeah, not much because... Clarence, of, Clarence House. He can afford a car that runs on cheeseway. Che cheeseway <laughs> and champagne. Mm. I mean, what a joke. Charles, when you're willing to live at the level of the African people who you insist should stay in poverty mm -hmm. to stop climate change, we'll take you seriously. Mm. The other figure is the guy who brought you bail-in, which is stealing people's bank accounts to save banks, and that's Mark Carney from the Bank of England, Bank for International Settlements previously. He's now a top UN emissary for climate. He called for a financial system in which every decision made takes climate change into account. And he also announced that his Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which he heads with uh, another billionaire, Michael Bloomberg, um, 
has, will allow, he said, this financial alliance will allow a radical new approach to mobilising private capital investment across the world. And they've actually got 35 of the 50 biggest banks in the world with assets worth $130 trillion prepared to plough money into net zero projects. Now, why are they prepared to plough money into net zero projects? These are the most profitable bank banks in the world because there's money to be made. That's the crucial thing here. Yet Carney went on to say he wants to set up what's called country platforms to oversee emissions goals of various nations. And this is along with all their disclosure arrangements where all the banks and companies have to disclose their emissions exposure and so on and so forth. So we're talking... But you know who doesn't get have to expose their disclose their emissions very much? The emissions trading schemes. Because <laughs> whenever they're audited, they're garbage. What they're, what, they're, what they're trading on in terms of the actual... Are, are these emissions being being um, uh, stopped? Are they being transferred, etc.? It usually falls apart. And this Glasgow Financial Alliance, <coughs> look, it's a cartel of the world's biggest transatlantic banks, asset managers, speculators, speculators and billionaires. And they're already blacklisting countries and threatening withdrawal of investment. At the same time as they're doing that, on the other side of the ledger, they're setting up this financialization of the economy and, in fact, a whole new parallel economy, which has nothing to do with what an economy should do, which is producing what we need to survive. So you've got your carbon trading, where they speculate on carbon credits yeah. and so forth. You've got green bonds. You've got ESG funds, which is environmental, social and corporate governance funds. Then you've got things like natural asset companies, which is the next big thing, where they commodify the natural assets separated from the land. So, you know, governments might own a tract of land, which they say separate out services from that land, like carbon capture services, as a separate commodity that not only can be bought up by some investment fund, but again, trading yeah. Yeah. in the shares and, and things in that and securitised and so forth. Um, now, in Australia, in May, the clean energy regulator announced that it would establish a carbon exchange where carbon emission offsets uh, or Australian carbon credit units, ACCUs, could be bought and sold just like a stock exchange, pending approval by ASIC. <laughs> <laughs> so this is going forward. Let's um, hope they do their job in that regard. But then you have another uh, facility called the Core Markets Hub. And this is funded by the Australian Renew Renewable Energy Agency. It's an over-the-counter platform to manage risk associated with carbon emissions offsets. But unlike the exchange, the actual carbon exchange, it doesn't require large positions and sophisticated setups uh, like the exchange does. So it's a bit easier just for companies to and financial institutions to work between themselves. So it parallels what you have that goes on in the derivatives market. In fact, the, um, in July, the Renewable Energy Hub conducted it for its first so-called put option trade in Australian carbon credit units. Oh, um, yeah, <laughs> this is where the, the buyer has the right but not the obligation to sell the units in the future, giving them downside protection if the prices go into reverse and start to plummet. And then those will be traded... Anyway, so you've got this whole other financial huge. infrastructure that's being built yeah. here. Um, now, coming back to Carney, because he's also recently become a uh, vice chairman of 
Brookfield Investment Company, which is, and Carney's been targeting Australia conceivably in the last several months because he came to, he gave an address to the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors on the 21st of July, talking about the fact that big emitters will be hit with carbon tariffs. And that's to scare them off, the, the super funds from investing in, you know, frankly, companies that are still important. He, uh, on the 20th of August, he then did an interview with the Weekend Australian where he said, this is a decarbonisation strategy and you've got to go where the emissions are. In other words, we're targeting you because you're emitting. Food, energy, pretty important stuff. That's where the emissions are. Exactly. Um, but the hypocrisy of Carney's company, Brookfield, uh, is yeah. that its investments in gas pipeline and gas storage equate to carbon emissions worth just 50 million tonnes less than the entirety of Australia. <laughs> no, and that's, this is a huge, this should be a huge scam, mm. right? This company, a huge emitter of carbon, they put Carney on the board or as an advisor to greenwash their own position, mm. right? And get away with it. Because in, in, so much of this stuff, when you drill down to the, the details, you can see the hypocrisy. It's not backed up by the facts of, of what they're actually doing, but it, it, the headlines are used to cow up politicians and everyone to going along with it. Well, yeah, look at these headlines. And this is just from the last six months, less than six months even. Um, big investors warn Australia on climate change. Several large investment funds are threatening to blacklist Australia, cutting billions of dollars of investment um, unless the government commits to net zero by 2050. It mentions US investment manager Invesco, a member of Carney's Financial Alliance, which manages over one and a half trillion. I'll keep putting some other headlines up. Here's an interesting one. The green, the big green short hedge funds tight fund titans warning sparks fresh concerns. The ASX is vulnerable, which talks about how US hedge fund titans such as AQR Capital Management intends to short sell companies with substantial carbon emissions rather than merely disinvesting. Short sellers are reportedly already targeting energy giant AGL. Um, and then this article, just as a final example, Commonwealth Bank eyes opportunities in global carbon credits, which says... We think Australia's got a unique opportunity just based on our natural resources being land, soil, sea, wind and solar to be a significant supplier of carbon credits, not only to Australia, but also into the world, which is a big opportunity for our clients. And this is something Carney's promoted uh, himself for Africa, where he says, oh, Africa, if it just doesn't develop, can make a huge annual income just on based on selling their carbon credits. We won't use the carbon. You can buy yep. our credits so you can emit as much as you want. So in other words, they'll have no development, no modern infrastructure, no industry, no agriculture, but you'll have an income stream. And so they would say, but then they'll have a planet because it won't burn up. Well, so I have to mention this. We have it in the back page of our alert service this week. Um, I found it rather hilarious that the Foreign Minister of Tuvalu addressed COP26 standing knee-deep in water off the coast of, of one of the islands there in Tuvalu to emphasise that the oceans are rising and they're going to swamp the islands of Tuvalu. The problem is, um, in 2018, ABC and RMIT, which is the fact-check division of ABC, and I notice you know, a lot of people are getting sick of fact-checkers, um, but anyway, they, sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're right. But in this case, they did a fact check of a Craig Kelly claim, right? And I'm not a huge fan of Craig Kelly, but 
Um, he is someone that, that is, uh, has expressed some scepticism in this. And he, he simply said in 2018 that Tuvalu is not sinking, it's actually rising. And that was such a shocking claim, ABC did a fact check. And have a look, it said, checks out, because it's based on a University of Auckland study, and you can see in the graphics there, that the red line is the current coastline of these islands in Tuvalu, and the majority of islands are actually growing, not shrinking, right? And that does not fit in with the, with the, the narrative, the, the alarmist narrative. Now, it's actually explained by the fact that the um, IPCC at least has four scenarios for climate change, and most of the com commentary, most of the discussion is based on the, the last one called RCP 8.5, um, uh, RCP standing for uh, Representative Concentration Pathways, 8.5, which is the most extreme and least likely. The scientists know it's the least likely. That's the one that informed, when they make their predictions about this is going to happen, all the one that scared little kids, mm. that's the one they use, right? And Tuvalu shows that um, its experience has nothing to do with that scenario, right? It barely fits the, the most moderate scenario of the IPCC. So that's the other, so when they say that, you know, oh, well, yeah, Africa foregoes development, but at least it's going to have a future. Well, that's the question. There, there is an issue here about what is what form is climate change taking? This is why the Indians and the Chinese at the last minute said, no, no, we're not going to put, you in the West want us to sacrifice all our economic development to meet your RCP 8.5 premised hysteria, and we're not going to do it. So they pulled the pin at the last minute and said it's got to be phase down fossil fuels, not, not um, phase out. Um, and I think the bigger argument that we should be having is, okay, what is this? What does climate change action mean? All right, because if there is a problem to be addressed, do you do something that just rigged the settings so that the bank, so that the bankers can profit, and then they will influence the media, and the media report as a positive thing, and we won't know that there's a problem because that they're happy, or do you say, okay, if emissions are the problem, what's the, how do you turn them off without destroying all our energy supplies? Well, there is an alternative, and as we dedicated our show to it a few weeks ago, called nuclear power, right? We've got one third of the world's uranium in this country. We should have a, be having a big um, nuclear power explosion, explosion of the use of power, not explosion of the plant. plant nuclear power plants don't explode like that. Um, and we just heard a briefing, Elisa, that even this week in the US Congress, um, it was briefed on real um, breakthroughs in the, the best that um, potential that will come after fission nuclear power, which is fusion, there's been enormous breakthroughs. And if we just got behind that and pushed it really hard, um, we could have a positive solution that advances our t actual technological prowess in the nuclear area and addresses all these concerns at the same time without destroying ourselves, right? And this is in, in, in impoverishing people in Africa. So look at the bigger picture, please, people, and don't, don't ignore the contradictions because they're important. Mm. And as always, we don't have time to go through everything, so contact us for a complimentary copy of our alert if you haven't before, or you can subscribe to get your regular weekly updates. Um, that's the show for this week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Elisa. And try and, um, if you're interested, become a member of the Citizens Party. Absolutely. So thanks for tuning in and see you next week. Mm -hmm.